Our Father, we thank you for the morning of worship. Thank you for scripture reading that is perfect, true, unchangeable, unalterable, edifying, helpful to the soul. Thank you for worship and song that drives us to you, that put puts words to these feelings of delight in you and our hearts. It reminds us of the truth of redemption. Thank you, Father, for prayer by which we have access to you and that we can join corporately with one voice to, to declare our allegiance to you, our dependence on you, our need for you. And thank you, Father, for this word that we have in front of us. We're going to give attention to it for an extended period of time this morning. Would you take this word and make it such that it is not just words on the page, but that it becomes words written on our hearts that makes us to delight in you, that loosens our grip on this world, and that emboldens us with a a deeper confidence in who you are and it makes us to treasure you more than we treasure anything else. Father, this desire that we have to treasure you is going to be our eternal contemplation, our eternal work, our eternal delight. Would you make it our work and our delight today? And would you do that by this word? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This might come as a shock to some of you, but last week I placed a book order. I know, it's surprising. A few minutes after I placed the book order, I got an email receipt. And it had a tracking number with it. So that I could follow the progress as the books made their way to me. I placed the order on a Friday. I got this maybe five minutes after I made the order. There was no way those books were on the way yet, never mind off of a shelf in a warehouse. But there's the tracking number. So guess what I did? Yep, I did the same thing you do. <laughs> I wanted to know, when are the books going to get here? Maybe they'll get here early. Maybe maybe they've already packed them. Maybe they've found them off the shelf. Maybe they're sending them to me. Someone makes a promise. We want the promise fulfilled now, don't we? Um, the reason I... Because I clicked that link as quickly. That's the kind of thing that I've been known to do in the past. That's, that's the kind of reason that Regine has affirmed to me on multiple occasions that I'm not the most patient of people. <laughs> and my guess is that in some of these things, you are not either. We want what we want, and we want it now. And the longer we have to wait, the more we're tempted to question the legitimacy of the promise. If the books show up late, we think, 
Well, but Amazon, Reformation Heritage, whoever I ordered from, they promised. Why aren't they here? No, they didn't get here on Friday, but they did show up on Tuesday just exactly when they said they would. But we don't want to wait, do we? We want what we want now. That's true of our relationships on earth. And unfortunately, that's true in our relationship with the Lord as well. And when we have to wait on the Lord, our hearts are inclined to unrighteously question whether God is willing or able to do what he, was, what he has promised. And that really is the heart of the question that is before the Hebrew people to whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing himself. The recipients of that letter had been suffering for their faith. They were being persecuted, and it had led some of them to say, you know, if we're in Jesus Christ, we ought not to be suffering in this way. And maybe if we just if we just go back to the Old Testament, if we go back to the Old Testament law, if we go back to the way we used to do it before and we weren't suffering, then maybe everything will be right. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to them to exhort them, don't, don't leave the faith, don't leave Christ. Endure, hang on, persist, trust God for His promises. And in Hebrews chapter 11, he runs us through a whole series of people from the Old Testament who received promises but didn't receive them and see the fulfillment of them in the way they anticipated, and yet they remained faithful. And he uses that as a stimulant for the readers and for us to persist, to keep going forward in the faith. This morning we come to verses 8 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 11, and we're introduced to the story of Abraham. And in these verses, what we're going to find is this. The living by faith means acting on God's promises when they aren't yet received. The living by faith means I trust God to accomplish what He has promised to do, even if I don't receive everything He has promised immediately, or even if I get to the end of my life and I still haven't received everything that He has promised. He's faithful. Now, Abraham is not the first of the people that he's introduced us to, but his faith is of the same kind of the, of the faith of the people already mentioned in this chapter. But there's also a contrasting uniqueness between his faith and the faith of the others. Think about Abel. Abel was given a promise and he received opposition, but his time of opposition was short before he was quickly ushered into the presence of God. Enoch never never experienced death. He passed from this life to the next life without experiencing death. Noah suffered and had to die, but, but Noah knew when the judgment was coming and he knew what kind of judgment was coming. God said, it's, it's coming in 125 years and this is what it's going to be and make a boat, a big one. And so he knew everything that was coming. Abraham, in contrast, received a promise and never in all of his lifetime saw the fulfillment of it. All the others to this point have seen the fulfillment of what was promised. And so the question before us today really is, how does one live by faith 
when God's promises are not yet fully fulfilled. In these verses, verses 8 through 12, the writer will reveal to us four aspects of Abraham's faith. He's going to tell us about four elements of Abraham's faith that conspired, worked together, conjoined together to make him a man of God, a faithful man. Four aspects of Abraham's faith. And then I want to look at, fifthly, how to work those things out in our own lives. First aspect of Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham left a land of comfort without knowing the future. As the writer introduces Abraham in verse 8, certainly his readers would have well known his story. Abraham might be the most significant character in the Old Testament, if not all of the scriptures. His story accounts for almost a third of the book of Genesis. He starts in the middle towards the end of the of chapter 11 and runs through the middle of chapter 25. But really, from chapter 11 forward, it's hard to read anything in Genesis without thinking about Abraham. His, his story just overwhelms that entire book. As he comes to the story of Abraham here in this chapter, Abraham by far receives more attention in this chapter than any other character he's going to speak about. And the author gives an ex- a simplified explanation of how Abraham got to the land of Canaan. He tells us in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. He was called. That's all the writer of the Hebrews says. I want you to keep your finger here. Stick another finger in Acts 7. And another finger in Genesis 12. And if you need, borrow your neighbor's finger. I don't know. We're going to bounce around between these three passages. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, Acts 7 verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Where's Mesopotamia? I'm glad you asked. See that big blank spot in the middle of the map? That's the Syrian or Arabian desert. To the east of that is Mesopotamia. You might see it there kind of on an angle written in large letters. Just north of Babylon north of the Persian Gulf, far east of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where he was. And specifically, we know from Genesis chapter 11 that he was in Ur of the Chaldees. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Terah, Haran, excuse me, uh, that's Genesis 11:31. took Lot, his grandson, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. So Abraham was way south in Ur, just north of the Persian Gulf, about 140 miles southeast of the city of Babylon, and he went up One of two routes, we don't know exactly, this map is showing it, that he's going along the Euphrates all the way up to the city of Haran. Could have gone along the Tigris, 
which intersects with the Euphrates at the city of Babylon and then goes north and then west. That's a journey of somewhere around 600 miles or so. He went there, as we read in Genesis 1, with Terah, his father, uh, with Sarah, his wife, and his nephew, Lot. He had another brother that evidently stayed behind in Ur. They stayed in Haran some time. We don't know how long they stayed in Haran. Um, and from there they went to Canaan. It should be noted that as, as we think about that journey from Ur to Haran, that, that Abraham was leaving as good a place as there was in that ancient world. Uh, Ur was well-developed in education. They had a clear system of reading and writing. They had an advanced system for keeping track of mathematics, and that was a well-developed system. It was financially prosperous. It was comfortable financially. It was a manufacturing center. It was a manufacturing center even primarily of statues and idols. They were made from a variety of goods like gold, copper, ivory, hardwoods, many of those things that were imported. And so it was prosperous. They had all of these goods coming in. Uh, It was comfortable. Listen to what Joshua says about Abraham. Joshua 24.2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. So back before the nation began, the fathers, Abraham, lived on the other side of the Jordan, way across Tigris and Euphrates, actually, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Joshua is clear that as Abraham, Abram at the time, receives this word from God, and as he and Terah and their family leave Ur, that they've been engaged in pagan, idolatrous worship. There was nothing about Abram at the time he received the word of God that made him inclined to follow God, except ultimately the word of God himself. They get to Haran. Genesis 11, verse 32, tells us that Terah, Abram's father, dies in Haran. And then from Haran, Abram, his wife, and Lot head down to Canaan. And that's about another 400-plus mile journey. So over this period of time, they've gone somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 1,000 miles, perhaps a little bit further, over a series of weeks, certainly, probably months, maybe even longer. There was almost nothing that Abram knew about what he would get on the other side, except this. Notice what the writer to Hebrews says. When he was called, he obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He just knows. God's made a promise. I'm going to get an inheritance and I'm going to go. What's interesting about that word inheritance is that just about every time, there might be one possible exception, just about every time it's used in the New Testament, It almost always refers to an eternal inheritance and eternal life. Just one or two examples. Chapter 9, verse 15 of Hebrews. For this reason, he, Christ, 
is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. It's talking about heaven. It's talking about eternal life. We find the same usage in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. When the writer to Hebrews tells us Abraham's looking for an inheritance. He's telling us that Abraham was anticipating, desiring something beyond this life. Now we're going to talk in a few minutes about the promises that God made to him in Genesis chapter 12. But he's thinking about something more than that. He's thinking about God as an eternal rewarder. Remember verse 6? Without faith, it's impossible to please him because if you're going to come to God, he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists and is all that he has said about himself and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's telling us in verse 8, that's exactly what Abraham believed. Even coming out of this pagan, idolatrous culture, he believes God's a rewarder and will give me something in eternity that I can never get here. The writer is emphasizing in this verse that Abraham believed by faith and that belief stimulated him to act. In fact, notice multiple times he says in this verse that Abraham went. Three times he says he went. When he was called, he obeyed by going. For he was to receive an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. He, he obeyed by going. He went out. He was going. What does the writer want us to know? He wants us to know. Abraham acted. He heard the word of God. God spoke to him a vague promise. At this point, he doesn't know the fullness of the promise yet. Sends him to a place where he doesn't know where he's going. Notice that in verse 8. Not knowing where he was going. God said, go. And he said, okay. I know that God is faithful to fulfill the promise. When God spoke like Noah, Abraham acted and obeyed. The one difference between Abraham and Noah is that Noah was part of this godly chain stretching back to Adam. And Abraham, can we say it this crassly, was a rank pagan. Wrapped up in idolatry of the worst sorts. And God spoke and transformed him and led him out. And he responded by faith. Listen, brothers and sisters, that that ought to be a massive encouragement to you because some of you, probably all of us, have family who are outside the kingdom. They don't trust Christ. And this is a reminder that God can take even people who are ensnared in idolatry and bring them into the kingdom. There's hope for your family that God can change them And give them a godly and spiritual legacy. I want you to notice something else about this. Notice verse 8. He says, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. And, And the tense of the verb is such that as he's hearing the call of God, he's obeying. 
One commentator said the voice of God was still ringing in his ears when he left. It's like, it's like he tells Sarah, pack up, we're going. Forget packing up, we're just going. Immediately. Why? Because, because God has spoken. There's no delay. Even though he didn't have all of the details, he trusted God to provide for him and to fulfill his promises. Again, notice he says, not knowing where he was going. He didn't know. God didn't lay out all the information at the time. He just said, go, and he went. In fact, Genesis 12 tells us that it's actually after he gets to Canaan that God says, oh, by the way, now you're here. Genesis 12, 7. Abraham is in Canaan, the land of Canaan, the land that belonged to the Canaanites. And then it says, Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So it's only then that God says, oh, by the way, now you're home. So he travels all that way, not knowing and believing in faith. Says one commentator, to leave the certainties one knows and go out into what is quite unknown, relying on nothing other than the word of God, is the essence of faith. I just believe what God has said in this word and I'm going to act on it. Trusting that what he said is right, good, and true. Listen, brothers and sisters, Abraham obeyed God and went to a land that he did not know because he knew that there was greater safety and greater peace in obeying God, not knowing all the fullness of the plan than staying in a known, comfortable situation and disobeying God. You may be in a similar situation. You may... You may say, you know, it's kind of comfortable where I am. It's kind of comfortable in this situation. But God has called you in a particular way to act in a particular way. And you said, it's going to cost me if I do that. Yeah. Following Christ is costly. I appreciated Stuart when he said yesterday that following the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be hard. Life will not get easier. It will get harder if you're going to follow Christ. Exactly. And that's the safest place to be when you're following God in obedience. By faith, Abraham left a land of comfort without knowing the future. Notice a second aspect of his faith. Verses 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham lived in the land of promise without receiving the promise. Now you would think, Genesis 12, 7, he gets to the land. God says, this is yours. You would think, okay, now it gets easy for Abraham, right? So now everything is free and clear. Now all the blessings are going to start pouring out. Now it's easy. Verse 9, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So twice he says, He's an alien. He's a foreigner. Yeah, he's in the land of promise. But being in the land of promise is bracketed on both sides by a reminder it's not his home. He's an alien. He's a foreigner. For all of that long journey, he left 
his home for a new home. And when he got there, it still wasn't home. Says one commentator, paradoxically, when he got to the land of Canaan, that God had promised to him, Abraham lived in it, not as its owner, but as a resident alien. (laughs) I know what that's like. I was born north of the American border, about 80 miles north in Canada. And for a number of years, even after Regine and I were married, I was still not a naturalized citizen. And every four years, particularly when the political cycle would come around and I would make an opinion about something, she would just look at me and say, you don't have a right to say anything until you can vote. I just want to clear, I am now no longer an alien or foreigner, but I have a right to say something. Not Abraham. All his life, he lived in the land of promise as an alien. It it actually gets worse. Dwelling in tents. He not only doesn't have a permanent spot in the land, he doesn't even have a permanent house. He's not even, he's not even renting a, a, a trailer. He's not even, he's not even in a fifth wheel. He's in a canvas tent that's gonna decay. How many times over the hundred years that he lived in Canaan did he have to replace that canvas tent? Who knows? How many times did he have to move it? Who knows? The whole time he's there, no home, no permanent home, no permanent location. And it gets still worse. It wasn't just true about him. But notice this, verse 9. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So the same promise that Abraham got get reiterated to Isaac and Jacob. And they live in tents the whole time as well. So they're aliens and strangers, and he doesn't spell it out in this passage, but he he wants us to remember, he expects us to remember that, oh, by the way, the next generation is Joseph, and we know that Joseph left the land of promise, and he went to Egypt, and they were stuck in Egypt for 400 more years. So they're still not home. Hundreds of years. No permanent home. Only a tent. There's still a further irony here. I said he never had a permanent home. That's true. He didn't own a piece of land. That's true in the sense of he didn't own a piece of land to live on. He did buy one piece of land in the land of Canaan. Do you remember what it was? It was the burial site for his wife. Genesis 23, he buys a plot to bury his wife. So the one permanent thing he has in the land is a reminder of his death. How do you keep going? As near as we can tell, we know from Genesis 12, Abraham was 75 when he got to the land. He died at 175. So he's about 100 100 years in the land. And then generations beyond him that never experienced the fullness. How do you keep going? How do you hang on? How do you persist? Well, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, verse 10, fellow heirs in the same 
speaking about Isaac and Jacob, they were fellow heirs of the same promise. He could live by faith, verse 10, because for he was looking for the city which has foundations. In other words, you know all these cities we see around us? There's no foundation. Oh, yeah, there's enough foundation that the building's not going to crumble today, maybe. But it has no lasting foundation. He's looking for the city that has the real foundation, a permanent foundation, whose architect and builder is God. He's looking not for somewhere here. Yeah, he went to Canaan because that's what God told him to do. And that's where God told him that the promises would be fulfilled through him. But Canaan wasn't his final destination. He's looking for a final city, a great city, a final destination, a permanent structure, something that only God can design and only God can build. It is perfect. It is impenetrable. It is indestructible. And by the way, for God to build it means that it must be eternal. And if it's eternal, what's he talking about? He's talking about heaven. He's looking for heaven. Abraham went to Canaan obeying the promise and obeying the command, but he was looking for more. He understood that the promise of the land and the promise of the people that would come from him was simply an appetizer. It's the smallest of promises that anticipate the great promise, the ultimate promise, the fullness of the promise. Listen, the secret. Did you notice the connection? He says in verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien How could he do that? Because he's looking. The secret of Abraham's persistent patience is that he's looking for a permanent dwelling. Listen, even if he had been a landowner, even if he had had a permanent house in Canaan, that would have been as temporary as the tent And it's because he was looking for something past Canaan that he could endure and persist. Because he knew this isn't ultimate. That's why when Lot comes to him and says, hey, we need to divide up. We need to, you know, one goes one place, one goes another because our our animals are impeding on one another. There's not enough grazing land. Abraham says, choose which way you want to go. I don't care. And Lot picked what appeared to be the best land for grazing, also was the worst land spiritually. And Abraham said, that's fine with me. I'll take the leftovers. Why? Because he's looking to heaven. This isn't ultimate. This isn't where he's placed his hope. He has his eyes on a bigger prize. He believes, verse 6, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. He'll say the same thing. We'll see this next time we look at this. Verses 15 and 16, speaking not just of Abraham, but also of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Sarah. If indeed uh, they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's what he's looking for. 
He could receive, he could live faithfully in the promised land without receiving the full promise because he was anticipating something better than a tangible and temporal blessing. By faith, Abraham left the land of comfort without knowing the future. By faith, Abraham lived in a land of promise without receiving the prom- promise. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah persisted in believing when tempted to doubt. Verse 11, we shift the view from Abraham to Sarah. Obviously, they are closely connected to each other, husband and wife. Sarah's got to be engaged in the process with Abraham in order for physical progeny to come. And we read what she thought about that in Genesis 18. Verse 11, the writer of the Hebrews says something a little bit different than Genesis. We see progress in Sarah by faith. Even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Um, It's helpful to think back to Genesis 12 and what the promise was that was made to Abraham. Um, there was a promise of a land. So God says to Abraham in Genesis 12:1, the Lord said to Abram, go now forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. So go to land. I'm going to give you a land. Verse 7 of this same chapter, we understand that it's the land of Canaan. He says in verse 2 of Genesis 12, not just will I give you a land, but he also says, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. So there's going to be a physical progeny that come from you, descendants that come from you. It tells us later that there's going to be as many as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. In other words, an uncountable number of people that are going to emanate from you. And then he says, thirdly, a third promise, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, there is a spiritual blessing that will come from you that will go beyond just your physical descendants, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, deal with the promise that Abraham received about the land and how... Abraham responded to that. This verse and the next verse deal with the physical posterity and the descendants that will come from Abraham that God promised in Genesis 12 too. As Moses tells a story about Abraham and Sarah, he is really clear about their inability to have children. So in Genesis 11... Um, Haran, it says, um, Haran, uh, Abraham's brother, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldees. So Haran dies. That's Lot's father. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Nahor and Milcah evidently stay in Ur, and Abraham leaves and goes with Terah to Haran, along with Lot. Verse 30, Sarah was barren. She had no child. That's what the text says. It twice. He says, Sarah doesn't have children. And it becomes pretty clear as we're making our way through this story 
that that situation doesn't get improved. Abraham is 75 when he arrives in Canaan. Sarah is 65. By the time we get to chapter 16, 10 more years had passed. Now Abraham's 85 and Sarah is 75. And Sarah thinks in chapter 16, hey, maybe it would be a good idea if I gave you my handmaid, Hagar, and you can have a child through her, and then you've got descendants and progeny, and I know it's not the best, but we'll make it work. And Abraham said, okay. And so Hagar has a child. Ishmael is born. Abraham is now 86. Thirteen years later, Genesis 17, Abraham and Ishmael are circumcised. He's 99. Sarah's 89. And God shows up again. That's Genesis 18. And makes another promise. I'm telling you, not only is is Sarah going to have a child, not only are descendants going to come from you, but by this time next year, And Sarah laughs. Abraham is now 100, and Sarah's 90. Sarah's initial response, skepticism and doubt. And as the writer of the Hebrews turns the page, if you will, from Abraham to Sarah, the readers all understand that. I mean, I've had to explain it, remind you, but that's all in their heads. I mean, this is is a well-known story to the readers And notice what he says about Sarah. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. She believed. Yeah, there was doubt. There was initial skepticism. Certainly there was skepticism over those 25 years of silence. But Sarah believed There is a little bit of difficulty about this passage, this verse. The text says something like this. Even Sarah herself received power to put down seed. And that's more literally what it says. And if you think about that, received the power to put down seed, that talks about the man's role in procreation, not the woman's role. And so there are all kinds of gymnastics that are done about this text and um, trying to figure out what the writer means. I think he means us to understand this as Sarah. He points her out by name and then uses a structure to say even she believed. And he's emphasizing it's her and it's her faith. And so I think what he how we might translate that phrase is something like this. Even Sarah had faith regarding to receive Abraham's power for the laying down of seed. In other words, Sarah believed that when Abraham came to him, that as they came together in union, that a child would be produced through them. Abraham believed, and she believed. After that initial skepticism. And why did she believe? Notice the end of the verse. Since, because, she considered him faithful 
who had promised. God promised. God said. And she said, I know the one who is, and I trust him. Listen, brothers and sisters, a lot of promises out there in this world. A lot of people saying, if you just... A lot of things enticing us to say, if you just do this, you're going to be satisfied. If you just follow this course, then you'll be happy. There's only one who can make that promise and fulfill it. 6.13 of Hebrews, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, God alone is the able promise keeper Chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. He will see you through to the end if you are his. He will keep you. He will preserve you. He will guide you. He will lead you. Listen, this chapter is not about having faith. This chapter is about a faithful, trustworthy God. You can believe Him. You can hold on to Him. He will satisfy you. He will not leave you behind. He will preserve you. He will keep you. When God promises and God declares, while you may be tempted to doubt... There's no doubt that it's final and you can repent and you can turn to him even as Sarah did and he will be faithful to preserve you. The way out of doubt is to remember that God is a promise-keeping God. Fourth aspect of Abraham's faith. By Abraham, by faith, Abraham left a legacy without having that ability. Notice verse 12. Therefore, therefore, I think it's referring back to the Sarah episode, right? So because of Sarah's faith, therefore, because of Sarah's faith that she believes that when Abraham comes to me, we'll have a child. There was born even of one man and him as good as dead. In other words, not just dead physically, but Dead in his ability to procreate. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. There is, there is a massive contrast here, right? One man, innumerable descendants. Who does that? Only one. God in heaven. Abraham didn't have power. He's dead. In fact, the writer to Romans, Paul, in chapter 4, tells us not only was Abraham dead, but but Sarah's womb was also dead. She had no power. Abraham had no power. Neither of them had any power to accomplish anything. And we find innumerable, uncountable people coming from him. Says one commentator, God's blessing is beyond human calculation. And the writer 
is reminding the readers about a God who fulfills and keeps promises. He has used the life of Abraham to illustrate God's faithfulness. God kept the promise of the land to Abraham. He kept the promise of physical descendants to Abraham. But this verse is more than just about physical descendants, isn't it? In fact, it's striking to me that the writer of the Hebrews quotes in verse 12 from Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God has reiterated the promise that he made in chapter 12 to Abraham. And it says in verse 5 of Genesis 15, And he, God, took him out, took him, Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, and if, you're, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. So as many stars as there are, that's how many descendants you will have. Verse 6 of Genesis 15, Then he believed the Lord. Abraham believed. Watch this. And he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. That phrase, it was accounted to him, it was imputed to him as righteousness. God declared him to be righteous. Becomes the statement of faith in the New Testament. This is how all men come to faith in Christ. So when when the writer of the Hebrews says what he says in verse 12, he's talking about physical progeny, but he's also thinking about spiritual descendants. God's, God's kept and is keeping all of the promises that he has made to Abraham, land, seed, and spiritual blessing. It's all kept. It's all preserved. Abraham's faith in God through which God declared him to be right, was not only Abraham's faith, but it's the same kind of faith that all men must have in order to be saved. In fact, that's what we read earlier in Romans chapter 4. Remember that? Romans chapter 4, after speaking about the faith of Abraham, it says at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 23, Now not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him or accounted to him or imputed to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and He was raised for our justification. The way Abraham was saved is the very same way that we are saved. He was looking forward to Jesus. We are looking backward to Jesus. And oh friend, if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus... You need, you must have this same kind of faith that Abraham had to believe in Christ only for your salvation. You cannot bring yourself to life spiritually. You have no ability to stand before the throne of God and give an adequate account of yourself to Him that would allow you into His presence and spare you from His judgment. Except believing that Jesus has died on the cross to save you from the penalty of sin and to save you from the power of sin. To redeem your life so that you will live eternally and to redeem your life now on earth so you can live with satisfaction. That's what Christ has done. That's what Abraham believed. And that's what you and I must believe. You need someone else to work for you. He worked for Abraham. And he will work on our behalf if we simply ask him by faith. That's Abraham's faith. 
What do we learn from Abraham's faith? What do we do because of this? Let me just draw your attention to four things very quickly. We do not need to know the detail of how things will work out in the future. We simply need to know the one who commands us to act and do what he commands us to do. And that's enough. You don't need the details. You need the one who makes the promise. It's enough to be obedient for the one who is tempted by anxiety, as we learned about yesterday. It's enough for the one who is tempted to stop loving, who says, I've loved enough, I don't need to excel still more. It's enough for the one who is tempted to stop believing in God, even as the writer is addressing these Hebrews who were in that position. When we know what God has said, We have everything we need to know how to act. And that's enough. We don't need to know how it will end. And oh, by the way, we actually do know how it will end. Remember chapter 10? By the time we finish Hebrews 11, you're going to get tired of me saying, remember chapter 10? Verse 37. For yet, in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. You know the end. He's coming. You can trust Him. Second thing we learn from this story, wherever we live, we are always living in an alien land. We are never home until we go home to heaven. If we treat this place as our final destination, we will never be satisfied. Abraham's experience is akin to what Paul wrote to the Colossians. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. We need to put our attention there. To be of earthly usefulness, our heads must be in the clouds of heaven. To be of any benefit on this earth, we must be looking way beyond this earth and looking to what we will have in the future. It's only then that we will be satisfied with what we have here, and it's only then that we'll be effective in how we are being used here. Our home is not here. And we should not grieve when we lose those things as if our loss is permanent. I needed that sentence this week. There are things we've all lost or are losing in this world. And it's grievous. But we should not grieve as those who have no hope. It's not permanent. It's not final. What is permanent cannot be taken away from us. We should always understand. I'm not home here. This is alien. Thirdly, the key to overcoming doubt is remembering the one who has made the promise. Sarah overcame her doubt by remembering the God who promised and his power. And the writer of the Hebrews is constantly pointing his readers to the supremacy of Christ to strengthen them in their struggles. 
10.19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because He who promised is faithful. We're going to see this, chapter 12, verse 3. Consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Remember Him. Remember His supremacy. Finally, our ability to serve God faithfully is not dependent on our ability or even our faith. It is dependent on the ability of God. Trials and troubles did not mean that God had failed Abraham, even when they persisted for centuries. Trials and troubles do not mean that God fails us. It just means that we need to persist in believing the one who is a promise, trusting that he will accomplish his purposes. We live in a perverse world, don't we? But it's always been that way. This week in my Bible reading, I read through the book of Judges. Remember the book of Judges? Someone has said, that's where all the weird stories in the Bible are. I read of the perversely tangled life of Samson. I mean, how do you sort him out? I read of the idolatry of Micah and the perversity of his personal Levite, quote-unquote, priest, so that he could do what he wanted. I read of another Levite's concubine, that's a problem, and the horrific sin of rape against her, that's a problem, and then how he cut her up and sent her to all the tribes, that's a problem, what do you do about that? And Benjamin's unwillingness to engage in retribution, and then the civil war against Benjamin, what do you do with that? And then what do you do about all the women that they procure to keep the line of Benjamin going? It's a perverse world. The final line in the book summarizes that difficult stage in Israel's history. The very last words of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, it was true then. It's true today. The sins of those days mirror and frankly surpass the sins of our own world. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Living in a perverse world does not mean that God God is impotent or God has forgotten. He's made a promise. He made it to Abraham, and though Abraham didn't see the full fulfillment of it, he kept it and is keeping it. Abraham kept on believing. God promised a land, and he believed. He promised physical descendants, he believed. He promised spiritual descendants, and he believed. And the writer of Hebrews recounts this story about Abraham believing without full fulfillment to encourage the readers and us. God's trustworthy. Hold on to Him. Do not throw away your confidence in God. God is coming and He will not delay from His timetable in completing His plan of redemption.
Our Father, we thank you for this reminder. Oh, we need this these days. And would you continue to stimulate our heart in gratitude and faithfulness, perseverance, joyful perseverance, because we have considered you as one who is faithful. A promise-keeping God who keeps his promises and keeps his people. Help us to live out that faith in the perversity of this world and in the difficulty of our personal circumstances this week. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.